Well, I tell you, I think this is going to be amazing, uh, not because I'm amazing, but because it's about an amazing God that uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And so I'm excited to share that message with you today. Again, my name is Steve Wallen. Uh, I am the campus pastor at our Noblesville campus. I also serve as our executive pastor here at Genesis Church, which means I have some oversight across both campuses and financial matters and HR and stuff like that, all the it's exciting stuff you don't see behind the scenes, but it's been, I was realizing this morning, it's been seven months since I've been here at Carmel and I've seen so many of you and you're like, well, I haven't seen you in a long time. I'm like, yeah, it has been a while, seven months. And I was kind of nervous because I also haven't been online in seven months and you kind of forget, it's, it's a learned skill. You kind of forget how to interact with the online audience. And so I was nervous this morning. My wife could tell I was nervous. And so she said, um, hey, don't try to be like smart or funny. Just be yourself. Like... <laughs> Like, oh, thank you, honey. That's so helpful. Actually, she didn't say that. What she actually said as we were sitting in the back of the auditorium for service and hearing the worship, she said, good luck following that. <laughs> so uh, that's why I'm here. But I am so glad. I, I was thinking about online service this week, and I was realizing that three years ago, we didn't have an online service. Not three years ago, today, in fact, on March the 12th. I was sitting in my office here at the Carmel campus. I was sitting here, March the 12th, 2020. I was preparing for weekend services. It was a Thursday. You can look at the calendar if you don't believe me. It was a Thursday, uh, which tend to be pretty busy around here because we're getting ready for the weekend. It's our last day in the office before the weekend. And uh, everyone had, Curse had heard reports of this novel coronavirus that was circulating. And uh, there were some cases in Indiana, but we none of us really knew how far this was gonna go. And uh, some things were starting to close down and I had just sent my e-news. I sent a weekly e-news to our campus uh, detailing all the stuff that's coming up. And I said, hey, I know some things are getting ready to cl are closing, but we're still planning to be here for services on Sunday. So I can't wait to see you there. And then an hour later, Governor Holcomb came on television on all the channels and said, nope, we're shutting down. <laughs> you guys remember that? It was 14 days to flatten the curve. Remember those 14 days? Wasn't that... Oh, good times. Remember that? So we pivoted. Our whole staff came together and we said, if we're going to deliver a church service this weekend, it's going to be online. It's going to be on Facebook or it's going to be on our website. And so we had our whole staff together pretty much all weekend. Joel and Justin and some of our worship guys worked particularly hard that weekend. We tore apart the Noblesville Auditorium and uh, set up a couple cameras in there. We had uh, our whole staff and a few volunteers and we delivered an online service for Genesis Church, the very first online service for Genesis Church. That was March the 15th, 2020. And here we are three years later and we've been doing it every week since then. As I thought back to that time this week, thought back to that time right after kind of the, what we now know as COVID-19, the shutdown. And uh, I was thinking about all the questions that we didn't yet know the answers to. Like, how, how is, what is this disease? How does it spread? How can I keep safe? Is it, I mean, is it okay for me to go outside? Now, who should I be around? Do I have to wash my groceries? I mean, you remember all the things that we were doing? So many things we still didn't know three years ago. And as days turned into weeks and weeks into months, many of us had friends or family who were hospitalized or even sadly died. I had two friends that I lost from COVID-19, sadly, but we still found ways to get back to a normal life, right? I mean, even in the view of tragedy of this deadly disease, I still look back fondly on some of those times right after the pandemic started. I, I mean, I always cherish the extra time I had with my family. I remember both of my kids were doing school online. My wife was teaching online. And so we spent a lot of afternoons together on the couch. We traded a lot of going to events 
for staying at home and eating dinner around the dining table. And that was a good time. And for a while, one of the highlights of our week became uh, watching John Krasinski's YouTube show called Some Good News. Did anybody watch this uh, during the COVID? Yeah, a few of you? Good. You, if you didn't, just so you know, the former Office star would take uh, time every week and he'd tell stories of how people around the world were coming together to do amazing things and encourage one another, like cheer for healthcare workers all over the world or to... Um, had stories of families that left uh, free hand sanitizer and toilet paper on their front porch for delivery drivers or um, of other families that are other people that would uh, mow their neighbor's yard for other neighbors. And it was an amazing time of people coming together, rallying together in a powerful way. For a while at least, it seemed like the entire country was dead set on helping one another. And you know, that's kind of a picture of what the church is supposed to look like when it's working well. It's kind of a picture of uh, the church in the book of Acts. <laughs> Get a little, uh, a little joy going on in the room, a little extra joy happening here. <laughs> you know, the, the first church uh, were, had a reputation for supporting one another and coming together to help people. Even people, as Jerry's, uh, as Jerry, that passage of scripture Jerry read, in the family of believers, but even people outside the family of believers. And for centuries since its birth in the book of Acts, the church has relied on people willing to help other people. After all, Jesus is our model for life and for ministry, right? And in Mark 10 45, it says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then 1 John 2, 6 reminds us that anyone who wants to live like Jesus, whoever claims to live in him must live like Jesus did. And so like our founder and savior Jesus, uh, we are called to serve. Our lives should model and reflect the life of Jesus. He is the one that got down on his knees and washed the feet of his followers. He willingly gave his life for others. And in our own unique ways as followers of Jesus, as sent people, we're called to do the same. So we're in week six of this year-long series called Sent. What we're doing, if you're new, is we're reading and studying through the book of Acts together. So if you've got your Bible or you have a Bible app, open it up to Acts chapter six. If you haven't been with us, maybe you haven't been following along, it's not too late to get started. Uh, six chapters is not a whole lot to get caught up on, so you're welcome to read, catch up with us, and join us again back here next week as well. Over the past few weeks, what we've seen is the rapid growth of the church, even in the face of enormous persecution. What started with 120 people gathered together in one room, 120 people uh, at, uh, on the day of Pentecost grew to over 3,000 and then grew to over 5,000 men, which means when you count women and children could have easily been 15 to 20,000 people now, just within a few weeks. Think about a Pacers game, a Pacers sized crowd is now making up the church just within a few weeks after the uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And so that's what's going on here. Kenneth Scott Latourette, who's a noted history professor at Yale University, uh, said this about the growth of the Christian church. He said, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force, or social or cultural prestige. In other words, he's saying other movements spread by force or by conquest, by politics, but not Christianity. What was it that caused the church to grow? Well, it was full of people who had encountered Jesus and they were out following his model 
They were doing what Jesus did. They were serving others like Jesus did. They were loving others the way that Jesus loved. And they were sharing the good news of Jesus with others and demonstrating it with their actions. And we're going to see a little bit more of that today as we start in Acts chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible open, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, Acts 6.1, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So early in the life of the church, this problem pops up. And it's a problem that's associated with growth, the growth of the church. There are too many widows, and some of them are being overlooked in their care. Why are there so many widows in Jerusalem? Well, let me explain. What's happening here, the scripture makes a difference between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. The Hebraic Jews would have been Hebrews by uh, breeding. They would have been mostly, largely in and around Jerusalem where they were born, grew up, and died. But the Hellenistic Jews would have been Jews from other parts of the world, mainly from the Greek Empire. Now remember, uh, Jerusalem was part of the Roman Empire. The Hellenistic Jews would have been largely from the Greek Empire, but it was quite an honor for a Jew, especially a Jewish man, to be buried in Jerusalem after he died. So many of these men, as they got closer to the t their time of death, they would move their entire family back to Jerusalem so that when they died, they could be buried there. Now, it wasn't unusual at all for an older man to take a much younger wife. So in many cases, you'd have this older man dying off, leaving the younger wife and maybe some children to be cared for by the Jewish people around Jerusalem. You know, and it was the, their duty to take care of them. But many of them then turned to the church because the church had an incredible reputation for generosity and support. And so that's what's happening here. It's a, it's a serious problem for the early church for a number of reasons. First, they're doing their best to care for the widows in their care, to serve and care for them who already called Jerusalem home. But then these other widows would, be, would pop up, were moving in, and the numbers under their care started to increase rapidly. And so they're having trouble keeping up. So that's the first part of the problem. The second part is that you have people complaining. Uh, the text says that the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews. In other words, the Greek Jews assumed that the Hebrews were ignoring them because of their race or their ethnicity. And so they assumed there was a racial component to it there. That's a real issue, one, one that needs to be addressed. And then the third thing is you have people just generally complaining about one another and against one another within the church. And let me just say, there is nothing that will create greater dysfunction in a church than people complaining about one another. But do you know something about complaining? We have a very real enemy in Satan that loves complaining. He, he loves it when we complain against one another, especially when other believers complain against other believers. Uh, he, he probably loves this split that happened during the time of COVID. In fact, you know, early on in the pandemic, like I said, it seemed like we were all on the same page. Like we're all just here to help. We're here to support. We want to do this thing together. But it didn't take very long, did it, for the anger and division to pour out of the political arena and into things like the medical arena, the church arena, you know, that, that people, even within the church, accused those of, who disagreed with them of either being uh, cold and ruthless and heartless or bowing a knee to Caesar, depending on what lever you pull in November. I know, I got all the emails, okay? I've, I've seen it. I have a friend who likes to say that Satan's greatest tool against the church is division. And so the church has a problem. And it is what some of my pastor friends might call a good problem to have. Uh, they always say that. You know what a good problem to have is, right? It's a problem you don't have. <laughs> it's somebody else's problem. 
But, but this good problem to have is a problem that's associated with growth. They're, they have a good problem to have. Um, yes, there's complaining, but the root of it is that their church is growing. There are too many people to care for, and then there are not enough workers. And, and that's their problem. You know what? Can I tell you that Genesis has some good to have problems too? Uh, you've probably seen it. Uh, we're growing. We're growing both at Carmel and at Noblesville. We're growing fast. Um, we're almost back, or in some cases, completely back to where we were pre-COVID, which, by the way, in the church world, that is not a normal thing. It's not normal to come into a place like this and see a crowd that's like it was in 2019, but we're doing that in a lot of cases, or very close to it. And uh, a lot of my friends in the church world say, that's a good problem to have, right? But it's still a problem because uh, we're, we're hurting for space. Maybe you noticed as you pulled up this morning and we're looking for a parking space uh, may, uh, that more people are coming every Sunday. More students, so many kids, so many babies, so many kids and babies. I think it must say something good about our marriages in the church. But so many babies. Genesis, you are helping people find their way back to God, and that's a really good thing. But then add to that that we've spent the last two years looking for a new place for our Noblesville campus to meet. I don't have any news on that today, by the way. That's not why I'm here. I didn't come to share good news with you. We haven't had any success yet. But we're really blessed to have the space that we have. And then here in Carmel, we're, how incredibly blessed are we to have this space? And uh, even while the city grows up around us, I mean, who knows how much longer, though, before we'll have to make a decision on this space here. And as we grow, we're going to face some challenges. We're beginning to see things like with a crowded parking lot or space in the auditorium or children's space and enough workers to make sure that we're serving our young people in the best way we can. Growing pains are real. And while they may be considered a good problem to have, they're still a problem and they're one that we have to address. And as we're going to see from our passage today, the best way to deal with these kind of problems, these growth-related problems, are to get each and every person serving in their greatest area of giftedness and passion. So let's go on. Uh, uh, verse 2, Acts 6, 2. So the 12, the apostles, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Now, please don't read or think that the apostles, what they're doing here is they're passing off the grunt work so that they can continue to pray and preach. Right? I know that's kind of how this passage reads. And I know some of you don't think that we work all week as pastors, that we work only on Sundays. You don't know what we do all week. Probably just sit at your desk and pray until the Lord gives us the message and then we come out and deliver it to you. Uh, that's not what happens. That's not what's happening here, okay? Uh, th th these guys have been doing most of the work since the church started. I mean, and so often, none of you have said this to me, okay? But I know occasionally somebody will come up and say, I really think the church should be doing this, and it's something that they're incredibly passionate about that the Lord has probably laid on their heart. And a lot of times I will turn to that person and say, you know what, you're right. The church should be doing something about that. Why don't you take the lead on it? And it's usually at that point where they go, oh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute, that's not what I meant. What I meant is, what they meant is that you, the pastors of the church, the people who work for the church, you should keep doing what you're already doing and add this new passion of mine onto your plate, right? Now, like I said, I know that none of you have ever done this. That's okay. But, you know, the truth is we all have limitations. We have the same amount of time in a day that you have. And, 
we have limitations on what we can do. And thankfully, the apostles realized their limitations. They realized that with everything that was going on in the church and how rapidly this church was expanding, they couldn't take on somebody else's pet project. So they had committed themselves to follow the pattern of Jesus, though. So Peter and John did what Jesus would have done, and he distributed the work. And that's what they decided to do. They, they appointed uh, some men, seven men, to help get involved in feeding, the, make sure, making sure that no widow went hungry. And what we see here is a model of leadership coming into place. It's one that will get fleshed out through the rest of Acts and then into the New Testament. And it's one that we're attempting to follow here at Genesis Church. For a long time, we have been a church that is led by a group of elders. At Genesis, we believe that Jesus is the head of the church. That's how it's written in Ephesians 5.25. But like we see in the New Testament, we have a team of elders who provide leadership and care and accountability and prayerful support. Uh, we'll read more about in Acts 20 when uh, how the elders were appointed in Acts 20, but our elders here at Genesis are Mike Jackson and Dan Youngblood uh, from the Carmel campus, and then from our Noblesville campus, we have Steve Davis, who serves as our elder chair, Daniel Kopic and Brian McCauley, and then our lead pastor, Paul Mumaw, there in the middle, he also serves on the team as an elder. Uh, also, though, he provides direction to our staff as we lead ministries and serve and care for you guys. Now, Jerry Neville and I sit in with the elders in their meetings every month, but we don't have a formal role or a voting presence on the team. But that's kind of our leadership structure here at Genesis. It's modeled after the first century church. But for the apostles, this was really the first problem that caused the 12 of them to look outside of their small group for more leadership to appoint other leaders. So they agree to choose these seven men to see to their problem of feeding widows. And here's what happens. Look at this, verse five. The proposal pleased the whole group. Now, just speaking from leadership, it doesn't have to be in the church. It can be anywhere. That's a pretty incredible proposal, isn't it? It pleased the whole group. Can you imagine coming up with an idea that everybody in the room's in agreement with? That would be amazing, right? It never happens. It happened here. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, who I always thought was in the Lion King, but apparently was uh, part of the early church, uh, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch. Now, a convert to Judaism. Now, notice Nicholas is from Antioch. Antioch is in the Greek empire. It's a Hellenistic city. So Nicholas, because he's a convert, was likely a Hellenistic Jew. So they put somebody who's part of the group that's complaining on the team to take care of the problem. What a great idea. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. They chose seven men, each with a story, a job, a family, skills, passions, probably a different Enneagram type. Seven men who were invited in for greater kingdom work and they lay their hands on them. Now this laying of hands on men in the New Testament, we're gonna see this a few times and it's doing two things. One, it's kind of a way of commissioning them. It's sending them out for work. It's saying, hey, we're giving this task over to you. We're laying our hands on you to commission you, to send you out to do kingdom work. That's the first thing. The second thing is it's kind of a symbolic filling with the Holy Spirit. We, we know the apostles had the Holy Spirit. We're also told in this scripture that these seven men were already full of the Holy Spirit. So how can you fill somebody who's already filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't know, but it's the first century and this Holy Spirit thing's all kind of new. So we're just gonna, it's like belt and suspenders, right? We're gonna just make sure that the Holy Spirit knows that he can travel through my arm over to you uh, who's going to take care of these widows. So there's, that's the two things that they're doing when they're laying hands. And look at the results, verse seven. So the word of God spread. It's amazing what happens when you get the right people in charge of the right tasks, right? Even people who sign up to distribute food 
which allows the apostles to focus on prayer and the preaching of the word, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They appoint these leaders and amazing things starting to happen. Jerry, this is where amazing comes in. Amazing things are starting to happen, not because they chose amazing men, right? But because they serve an amazing God. Amazing things start to happen. Luke explains that the number of disciples increased and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Don't miss this. This is significant. The priests were some of the greatest antagonists of the Christian faith in the first century. The priests were Jewish people who were there at the crucifixion of Jesus. They crucified him, but how many of them are coming to faith? What a great reminder for us that even the fiercest opponent of Jesus can come to know him as Lord and Savior. You know, I was um, preaching at Noblesville. I was getting ready to go on stage at Noblesville last week. And uh, one of my friends from the audience came up to me and said, hey, I want you to meet somebody. It was the, the greeting time, you know, that some of you love and some of you hate uh, when we do the greeting around the room. And uh, this, this one guy, his name's Jerry. Jerry said, come here, I want you to meet Mike. And so I came up uh, to Jerry's seat. Mike was a, a single man there by himself, uh, probably 80 years old. And um, I, he introduced himself to me and I shook uh, Mike's hand and he, he just, he kind of looked at the ground the whole time we talked, and, but he shook my hand and said, my name's Mike, it's my first time here. And then as I walked away, Jerry kind of whispered to me, he goes, I think it's his first time ever at church. I was like, oh no, like I'm getting ready to go on stage. What am I gonna say to bring Mike to Christ, right? I, I've got a whole message in front of me, but all of a sudden it seems completely irrelevant because I, now I'm just gonna preach to Mike. So after the service is over, um, I uh, come out into the lobby and my wife is serving at the, we, we still have a blue tent in Noblesville. You guys are all fancy with your new, new person here, right? But we've got a blue tent. My wife is serving at the blue tent and she goes, come here, I want you to meet somebody. And it was Mike. And um, Mike uh, shook my hand again and he said, yeah, I wanna, I wanna, and this is how he talked. He said, I wanna tell somebody my story, but not here. And so I said, okay, yeah, come on, let's go into my office. And so I, I, you know, between services, I pull Mike into my office and he starts telling me a story and his story is, he said, I'm an atheist. This is my first time I've ever been to church. I don't even know why I'm here. But he said, um, he, his wife's got some medical issues and he said, um, I didn't grow up in a godly house. I was a tough kid growing up. He goes, I, I've done a lot of things wrong. He goes, but I wanna believe. I don't know if I'll ever be able to believe, but I wanna believe. Now, I wish I could tell you that I led Mike to Christ right there on the spot. I did not. But what I did tell him was I said, Mike, you are in the right place. I'm so glad you're here. I, th I said, I think the Lord is drawing you to himself. I want you to keep coming back, keep meeting with us. You know, come see me during the week. Let's have conversation. But the point is, I believe by faith that Mike is gonna come to faith in Christ someday. He has been one of the toughest opponents of Jesus in his entire life, never having believed and I think it can happen to him. It happened here in the book of Acts. The priests are coming to Jesus. In, in this case, many of the inconvertible were being converted. The priests are coming to follow Jesus. And how cool that it's at least partly as a result of the compassion and love being demonstrated by the church. That's why we celebrate generosity and serving as a church. That's why we take this moment to celebrate offering every week uh, as part of our service. We're not trying to draw attention to ourselves, but we're trying to draw attention to Jesus. It's why we do something like collect food for Shepherd Community Center. You know, we believe that Jesus cares about the less fortunate and the hungry. And since we are the hands and feet of Jesus, we need to care about the things that Jesus cares about. 
So we wanna demonstrate that with our actions. Did you know that Genesis Church is gaining a reputation in our communities as a church that cares well for people? I just got an email, we just got an email a couple of weeks ago from a young woman who attends the Carmel campus here who tells us that twice in one week, Genesis came up in conversations with people that didn't know that she attended here. And she told us this story. She said once it was with a coworker who had attended one of our services for the first time. And she said the environment was so warm and welcoming. That's you guys. The environment was so warm and welcoming. And for the first time ever, she had a pastor introduce himself to her. And she was just blown away by that. The second was from a foster parent who had needed some clothing and other items for an infant who was placed in her care. And she talked about how a group from Genesis got all the items and brought them to her house. So not only did she not have to buy anything for this foster child that she was taking in, she didn't even have to leave her house. It was delivered to her. She said this, the church was so supportive and I don't even go there. How amazing is that, Genesis? You were a part of that. How neat is that? So again, we're not trying to draw attention to ourselves. We wanna draw attention to the things of Jesus. We wanna care about, we wanna talk about the things that he cares about. We're here to be his hands and feet and his voice. And so a few things that I just want you to take away from today from Acts chapter six, uh, three lessons I think we can learn. Number one is this, uh, sent people, serve people. You know, that's Jesus. That's the model he set for us that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, There's no greater example of being a servant than Jesus. And that's the attitude of the early church. They, They saw that they knew that their lives had been radically changed by the resurrected Jesus. It was their goal, their mission to tell everybody about him, but they also came ready to serve. They came ready to meet the needs of the community and the people around them. And and what's really cool about this is that when the church lives generously like that, it's not just the church that benefits. What we see here in Acts chapter six is it's not just Christians that are coming to benefit, the whole world started to notice. In fact, the Roman emperor Julian, who was one of the fiercest persecutors of Christians of the early church, admitted in disgust, he said, these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. What a reputation. I love historian Eberhold Arnold said that uh, most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of communities, of these Christian communities, these Jesus communities. Christians spent more money in the streets than followers of other religions spent in their temples. You know, if you have trusted Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And for that reason, you have been sent by God to go into the world and serve because that's what Jesus modeled for us. And serving is what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. And when sent people like you and me make up our minds to model our lives after Jesus, taking up the position of a servant, amazing things happen. The apostles selected seven men. And the truth is, we don't know much about five of these men. We know a little bit about Philip. We're gonna read his story in a couple of weeks. And we know about Stephen. But what we know about these men, all seven of them, it says, one, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And two, that they made themselves available. And apparently, that's a pretty good place to start for anyone who wants to serve Jesus faithfully in the world. Sent people, serve people. Let's go on and I'll show you the second lesson. Acts 6, 8 says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Wonders and signs. And think about this. This is not what he signed up for. What did he sign up for? To give out food. 
That's pretty much equivalent to signing up to serve in our cafe, right? To serve coffee and bagels. Now imagine one day you sign up to serve in our cafe and you're serving coffee and bagels and all of a sudden people are coming to you and you're healing them left and right, right? This is what Stephen's doing. He signs up to hand out food and he starts performing all these signs and miracles that even though he was an ordinary man, God decided to use him in even greater ways, which leads to another really important lesson. And it's that God uses ordinary people. I mean, other than the fact that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and made himself available, we don't have any reason to believe there was anything special about him. So quick question, how many of you are believing there's more to life than just school or a job, a big paycheck and a bunch of vacations? Anybody? Good. Now, the first service didn't know. They weren't quite so sure, but I'm glad that you guys know. Uh, how many of you want to make your life count for something and know you're living a faithful life for Jesus? Good. How many of you though feel limited or ordinary? That's me. I know, man, I feel you. Like, I don't have a really special story of coming to faith in Christ. You know, I have a story of how I was rescued from the jaws of death. I know some of you have that story. I'm very ordinary. I'm not at all spectacular. And I think that's probably how Stephen felt. He made himself available out of a belief that he had more to offer, that there was more to life than meeting in the temple courts and feeding his family than crashing on the couch and watching Emily in Paris or whatever they did back then, I don't know. But in fact, this is a theme we're gonna see over and over again in Acts that God uses ordinary people. Remember in Acts 4, remember Acts 4 that uh, Peter and John are drugged before the Sanhedrin and they questioned him and um, they walked away and the Sanhedrin said that they were, do you remember what they called them? They were unschooled, ordinary men, but took note that they had been with Jesus. And that made all the difference. So I've got good news for you today. I've got good news for you if you were not valedictorian or salutatorian of your high school. If you weren't a cheerleader or the captain of the football team, or if you never won a state championship, if you were never voted most likely to succeed or miss congeniality, if you never won employee of the month or salesman of the year or a, an Oscar or an Emmy or a Heisman trophy or a Nobel prize, if you have done those things, I've got good news for you. God can still use you. Okay, it's just that he specializes in using ordinary men and women and kids and students who have spent time with Jesus. Which brings me to the third lesson we get from this text, and it's this. What do you need to say yes to? Where, where is God calling you to use your talents and skills? Where, where has God given you a passion that not many people have? And let me tell you, it may not be a huge awe-inspiring, life-changing moment uh, or decision that you have to do in order to serve people better. Like, don't, you may not have to quit your job or move to Africa or start a new ministry. You might if God's calling you to, okay? But you may not have to do that. In fact, I'm convinced, I'm more and more convinced the older I get and the more I've been around uh, Jesus, the more convinced I am that when you take a pass on the ordinary, you miss out on the extraordinary. And so it may just be one little thing that you start doing in order to serve people better. For Stephen, it was the distribution of food to widows. What might it be for you? Let me give you a couple examples of what it might be like. As I mentioned, we're collecting food for our partners at Shepherd Community Center right now. There are some totes out in the lobby. You can grab one or more of those and fill them up. Those are due back next week, the 19th. Take one or more. Each one of them represents um, one week of food for one student in Shepherd's programs. We're hoping to fill 300 of those totes to provide 150 kids with breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day of spring break. You can fill those up and bring them back next Sunday. 
I also told you that we're growing and that means several areas of ministry where we need leaders. Gen kids, yes, absolutely. We always need help in gym kids, but also we're trying to start a parking team here. And we have a great parking team at our Noblesville campus. We don't have one at Carmel. And my guess is that you didn't wake up this morning, look at the snow and think, I would love to spend two hours in a parking lot today. But let me tell you, it's a great time of year to join a parking team because it's getting ready to warm up. It's gonna be super nice out there. And uh, how could God use you by just directing traffic and smiling at people as they come in and being the first smiling face that they see? And who knows one day when somebody like Mike might drive up to your campus and you would be the first smile at the first church he ever went to. How could God use that? You know, if you're watching online today and you've been watching online for a while, you haven't been back here in person, come back. Like we miss you. I mean, I know you can hear the music and the message at home. And, but what we see from the first church is so much of the magic happened when they were all gathered together in one place at one time. And that happens here. There are things that happen here that you just can't experience there. We had pancakes today for crying out loud. Where is God asking you to give your time, your talent, your skills? Is it something specific for a neighbor or a family you're going through a tough time? Maybe it's a, a foster parent or a single mom. Uh, students, is there a way for you to help a teacher in your school or a fellow student who's having a rough time? Is there a need going unmet in your community or at your workplace or at your school that you could help meet? The, the first six chapters of Acts provide example after example of ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit, trusting God and living obediently. Now, if you keep reading Stephen's story, you'll see that people get really frustrated with him and he's eventually brought in front of the Sanhedrin and he will boldly declare his faith and message and the good news of Jesus and eventually he'll be executed for his faith, which is a tragedy for sure. But I don't think Stephen saw it that way because like Jesus, Stephen was willing to lay down his life in the same way that Jesus laid down his because he lived boldly and faithfully, many people are gonna to come to Christ. We'll see in the chapters to come. And honestly, I don't think there's anything more important than that. Which leads me to maybe the most important thing that you can do for someone, and that's to share your faith. To share your story and share God's story of how he rescued you. And God can use someone like you, even you, an ordinary person to help people find their way back to him. It's it's why we've been praying this prayer together as a church. We're calling it my everyday prayer. And it's this, Father in heaven, thank you for saving me. I want you to do for others what you have done for me. Help me, use me today to help others know you. As we close out our service, I'm just gonna give you a moment or two to pray that on your own. Would you just bow your heads with me? And then I'll close us in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for saving me. 
for those of us in the room, those of us who are watching online, who have had a genuine encounter with you and have given our lives over to you, thank you for saving us. I am so thankful that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. That, that even though all of us fall short of the glory of God, that you came down here, Father, you weren't satisfied to watch us dwell in a broken world without you. And so you sent your one and only son to come to earth, to live a sinless life, to die a tragic atoning death on the cross, a death that I deserved. And then on the third day, you raised him up and he ascended into heaven where he sits at your right hand right now. He's interceding on our behalf. Even right now, Jesus, you are hearing this prayer and interceding for us. And I'm thankful for that. God, we want more people to come to know you. Not so that Genesis can be great, but so that you can be great. We want people to experience what we've experienced. We want uh, people to have their lives changed and be rescued from addiction and and, and pornography and from all kinds of sin and broken relationships and all the things that come with this broken world. We wanna see that healed in our lifetime on this earth. And we know Jesus, only you can do that. There's not a single politician or policy or procedure that we can put in place that'll do that. Only you can do that. And so Lord, as your people, we wanna say we're available. We're here. We wanna be used by you. We have your Holy Spirit, Lord, use us. We're so thankful to be a part of this church and part of this place, but most importantly, a part of your family. And we praise you. And when people come to know you because of things that you've given us to do, we will give you all the praise and all the glory you deserve, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray, amen.